Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and no John Vecchioni today. He's on vacation. So those of you who uh, tuned in to uh, to hear his uh, his usual humor, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint. But uh, as a as a special uh, as a special treat, we have my colleague Peggy Little, a senior litigation counsel here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, uh, to talk about a Supreme Court case that uh, she has been working busily on. Welcome to Administrative Static, Peggy. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here. So this is the first uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, case that uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, has had, and we have talked about this on the program many times before, so I don't want to go into into much detail here on on the background of the case. I'll just say that uh, this is uh, Michelle Cochran v. SEC, and Michelle uh, was accused of some uh, of some paperwork violations in the SEC. Uh, and for those who are interested in her story, you should go to our website at nclalegal.org and or to our uh, YouTube page. You can see a video that uh, that tells a little bit about about her story. But the the issue that's teed up Peggy at the U.S. Supreme Court is simply whether or not she can challenge the unconstitutionality of her administrative tribunal before she has to go through that tribunal. In other words, do district courts have jurisdiction to hear her constitutional objections uh, to that uh, tribunal, or does she have to wait to bring any of those objections until after she's already gone through the entire administrative tribunal, at which point it would be awfully hard to give her uh, a remedy for going through an unconstitutional uh, tribunal. So maybe I'll start with, you argued this case in the in the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, both at the panel stage and on box successfully uh, at the on box stage. Uh, why do you think the Supreme Court uh, has has taken the case? I think the court has taken the case because uh, the circuit court decisions leading up to the on bank in Michelle's case were. <sighs> frankly illogical. What they required people to do is go through the very administrative hearing that they were objecting to uh, on a constitutional basis. And if they were correct, um, as for example, Ray Lucia was correct once he took his case all all the way to the Supreme Court, their remedy is to go back and get retried again. And this happens anywhere from three, four, five, or more years after the events with which they are charged. It's also very illogical. Justice Scalia once said, while it's great to have precedent on your side, logic is even better. And I agree with that here, because what the courts were doing in five circuits with the SEC and then the Ninth Circuit also took the same approach 
in a very similar case uh, under the FTC statute. Right. Federal Trade Commission. Right. And what those um, courts were doing was telling people, nope, sorry, there's this procedure you got to go through and uh, we'll let the circuit courts sort all sort out all the constitutional objections later. Um, as the district court judge in Michelle's case said, he was deeply concerned with the fact that Michelle had already gone through one unconstitutional proceeding, and that's because her judge, Cameron Elliott, had not been properly appointed. Now she was going to have to go through a second hearing before a different judge who still had uh, and enjoyed uh, unconstitutional multiple layers of tenure protection that stood in the way of the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And so uh, the district judge openly said, you know, I'm concerned about this, but I feel my hands are tied because the circuit courts have been marching in a uh, direction of forcing people back into these administrative proceedings. So these, the en banc <clears throat> decision um, by the Fifth Circuit, which was a very lively um, argument, turned that ship around. And what it said was, First of all, as a matter of statutory interpretation, this is an incorrect reading of the provision for administrative proceedings, which only pertain to final orders, which Michelle's was not, nor was Ray Lucia's in a similar case. So um, what we have in the in the Fifth Circuit en banc opinion... Well, well can, can I just stop you there? Because sure. I, I know you filed your opening brief this week in the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's what I wanted to talk about today. We've had a... We talked about the Fifth Circuit decision when it came down uh, back in, in December. And what I wanted to, to share with our audience today is what are the particular arguments that you are focusing on at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to, to encourage them to find that there is jurisdiction in district courts to hear these kinds of objections? Well, first, as a statutory interpretation matter, they um, have to allow circuit court jurisdiction because the way the FT, F, sorry, SEC statute is set up, it is only um, provides for um, administrative jurisdiction over final orders. And, um, and hers further, is not a final order. Uh, no, right. no, we're near a fine, yeah. final order. And, and furthermore, the uh, SEC statute expressly preserves constitutional federal court jurisdiction. So um, just as a plain matter of statutory reading, um, there should be district court jurisdiction here. Furthermore, in 2010, the United States Supreme Court decided in a case called Free Enterprise Fund, that under the exact same SEC statute. 78Y for those who <laughs> want to get in the weeds. Okay. <laughs> Making the exact same um, challenge to multiple layers of removal protections, which was at, at stake in the Free Enterprise Fund case. Right, and here. And the Supreme Court held that that statute did not strip federal courts of jurisdiction of constitutional questions, either explicitly or implicitly. So the big mystery is why were the circuit courts getting this wrong, since all of those decisions were issued after 2010, when the Supreme Court had already decided the question. Yeah, well, that is a mystery, and I'm glad that the Fifth Circuit finally got it right. 
Uh, what other arguments? So it sounds like one of the arguments you're making is just simply look, free enterprise fund has already decided this question, and and that should you know that sh that should do it. But how do we? Obviously, free enterprise fund didn't keep the other courts from going astray. What what does the court need to do in this case to make sure that it that it sort of underscores what it did before and reiterates in a way that the that the courts won't get it wrong going forward? Well, I think that the statutory interpretation uh, is is really strong point that we make uh, so we don't even have to rely on free enterprise fund, although it has decided the question. Um, there's sort of a backup argument that comes up. There's a case called Thunder Basin, and it has three prongs that you take a look at. And while not essential to the decision, another mystery is why were courts below getting this wrong since free enterprise fund says that um, if the um, administrative proceeding um, denies a person meaningful judicial re review, if it's wholly collateral, and if it does not rely on agency expertise, then it should go to the courts. And under all three of those uh, considerations, uh, the um, Michelle should get into federal court because her claim is not of a final order. It's wholly collateral right. to the, the challenge to the administrative law judge she's bringing. The administrative law judge not only has no expertise in deciding consequences, Constitutional questions, but um, is uh, has a conflict of interest. He or she would be ruling on their own ability uh, to sit constitutionally, and um, literally being a judge in their own case. <laughs> and obviously, there's no meaningful judicial review here because you've already gone through uh, the uh, unconstitutional proceeding before you can challenge it. And there were there were judges out there who started to note this. Notably, yes, I think you called them valiant dissenters in your uh, in your brief, if I if I remember correctly. That's correct. And NCLA actually had an um, um, interesting lunch and law presentation with the first of the judges to do that. That was Judge Christopher Droney of the Second Circuit, who wrote an enormously thoughtful dissent that gets quoted a great deal in our brief, but also in the decision uh, of the Fifth Circuit below. Uh, Judge Bumate also did a dissent um, in the FTC matter. And then, um, of course, the first time I argued this at the Fifth Circuit, Judge Haynes also issued a very thoughtful uh, and consent. And she was the um, writing judge for the 9-7 decision at the Fifth Circuit that ruled in Michelle's favor. Terrific. Well, so the case is now uh, the... The opening brief has been filed. The government will file its uh, response brief, I think, sometime in August. And then you'll have a, a reply brief, I guess, in, in late August or maybe it's early September. Uh, and then this case will be teed up for oral argument sometime this fall. Uh, but we don't have an oral argument date yet. Is that is that correct? That's that's correct. This case has been consolidated with a similar um, FTC case called Axon. And they will be argued separately as they should be because they are separate statutes. And um, these cases must be decided under the particular statute, uh, but they will be likely argued the same day. And we're hoping for uh, a positive outcome in both cases, because to reiterate my earlier point, we've got logic on our side. Yes. And Paul Clement is doing the former solicitor, former solicitor general of the United States. Paul Clement is doing the oral argument for Axon. Uh, Greg Garr, former solicitor general of the United States, is doing the oral argument for for Michelle Cochran, uh, uh, along here with with NCLA, 
And so we're very excited about uh, uh, about this case. We will certainly keep you posted on it. Peggy, thank you for bringing us up to speed on where things stand in Cochrane v. SEC. We will keep an eye on this at Administrative Static. Welcome back to Administrative Static. I'm pleased to have another one of my NCLA colleagues with me today. You see, when, when John's not here, I need as many crutches as I can get. So I've, I have invited in, not to call you a crutch, Jeannie, that doesn't seem like the nicest thing to say about somebody. <laughs> but uh, my, my colleague, Janine Yunus, one of the litigation counsel here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, uh, has joined me to talk about a case pending in the Sixth Circuit. So uh, Janine, welcome to Administrative Static. Oh, thank you. Here again. Uh, so the, the case we've talked about on the program before is uh, Norris v. Stanley, and this is uh, Insulae's lawsuit against Michigan State University over a mandatory vaccine for employees. And as I remember the case, uh, our client, Gina Norris, uh, is um, uh, uh, works off-site, doesn't, wasn't even working on the campus. She was a remote uh, employee, but they wanted her to uh, to in order to continue her employment, they wanted to mandate that she uh, get uh, get this vaccine. And then we we had a, a trial at, at the district court. I know you were up in, uh, was that in? Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo, yeah. Michigan. That's right. <laughs> I think, isn't that where the vaccine is actually manufactured, if I remember? I think, yeah, right If I remember there. correctly. So uh, uh, as, as fate would have it. Uh, and the, the district court did not agree with us. So we've, we've appealed this now to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati, which oversees Michigan, Ohio, uh, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So tell us, what, what are the issues that are still in the case on appeal at the Sixth Circuit? Well, the main issue, and actually at this point, we have three plaintiffs, so uh, two others joined, and they were actually terminated by MSC. They lost their jobs because they didn't want to get the vaccine. So one of the actually crucial um, facts of the case is that all three of the plaintiffs have natural immunity, which scientists, scientific evidence has established is as good or superior to the vaccines. Really, it's clear that it's superior, especially against the latest variants. And um, even the government is starting to admit that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, even the CDC has a study from January basically saying as much. Um, so one of the issues that uh, lawyers litigating these cases at this in this in, against state governments or you know mandates that are coming from state and local governments face is a case called Jacobson. It's really been a thorn in our side. Uh, uh, Jacobson v. So Massachusetts, nineteen oh five. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's a Supreme Court case, and it involved uh, the town mandating, or actually, I think it was a Massachusetts law mandating the smallpox vaccine. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, I think, if I if I remember correctly. Yeah, and this case has really been incorrectly cited to stand for the proposition that all vaccine mandates are legal. Uh, some subsequent cases have interpreted it that way. Uh, it's clear, though, that that's actually not really what Jacobson stood for. There were a number of factors that the court looked at in that case. For instance, the fact that um, smallpox is a very deadly disease and sort of cuts across age groups, it's not age stratified in terms of who it affects, unlike uh, COVID, was one of the factors that the court considered. 
um, and also the fact that the vaccine in that case stopped transmission. So the court was saying, you know, this could end the um, could end the epidemic, and it also protects other people. We know that the COVID vaccine, uh, to the extent it is effective in stopping transmission, it's not all that effective, especially with the variants. And that, but that was one of the reasons given to justify mandates at the beginning was. Well, you, right. you know, even if you don't want the mandate for you, you need to get it for your neighbor, for your, you know, for the senior citizens in your community, for the children. You know, right. these were all reasons to get it. But if it's, but if the vaccine doesn't help uh, prevent spread, then that seems like that rationale goes away. You might still want to mandate it for your employees because you're concerned about your employees' health, but it can't be because you're concerned about spread to other people anymore. Right. Um, yeah, if you're being honest about the evidence, although a lot of the universities and sort of local governments that are doing these mandates are conflating the two concepts. But I think it's also highly problematic, as we point out in the brief, to uh, consider the employee's individual health or to use that as a basis for mandating a vaccine. I mean, once we start to you know, say that your employer can mandate things because then you're more healthy. Well, where does it really stop? I mean, can they mandate that you have to eat broccoli or maintain a certain BMI or not smoke cigarettes? Um, I think most of us would agree that employers shouldn't have that kind of power, especially government employers, which right. is what we're talking about here. Well, and there are laws that prevent that. For example, you can't you can't tell your employees that they can't get pregnant. Right. You know, even though, you know, that that might have health consequences for them. You're not allowed to do right. that. Right. So so Jacobson presents a number of problems. And I think uh, over the past decades, courts have interpreted it to stand for this idea that you can just that any, basically any governmental entity can mandate a vaccine. And that's just not correct. Uh, Jacobson actually applied a balancing test where it considered these factors that talked about the state's interest versus the individual interest, the individual liberty interests in being able to refuse an unwanted medication, which is a constitutionally recognized right. It's sort of all encompassed in and has a has a long historical pedigree as well, which right. is something the Supreme Court seems to be pointing to in, in its, uh, in, at least in this month, uh, you know, its recent cases uh, on constitutional rights. Right. That's exactly right. Um, so so the idea is really that there should be a balancing. And because of these factors we've discussed, among others, another uh, really different thing in Jacobson was that the mandate came from a legislature as opposed to a dictate from I don't know exactly who crafted the policy at MSU. We don't know, but um, this didn't go through the legislative process, which makes it a, a bit more, you know, you have different perspectives from different people who are accountable to constituents. That was another factor that the court cited as a reason it should defer. So in Jacobson and Jacobson. So we have, you know, all and that factor is not present here. Not exactly. Because Michigan State University, the district court said it was reasonable for Michigan State University to rely on the federal government's guidance uh, in this area, right. even though that guidance turned out to be scientifically uh, wrong on in certain sound, respects. Yeah, yeah. 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 And the guidance really, they relied on guidance saying that naturally immune people should get the vaccine as well. But this really wasn't based on, you know, sort of a scientifically sound interpretation of the data. And, you know, it's also worth pointing out that just because the CDC says, oh, you know, you might want a little extra, extra protection, you should just get the vaccine. First of all, there's a question as to whether it actually confers additional protection. Certainly there's some evidence that it might, risk. yeah, that it might, it might reduce. But uh, even as if well. so, to start firing people because of a tiny, you know, additional protection, especially when the vaccine doesn't stop transmission, is is ridiculous, frankly. Horrible public policy. <laughs> yeah. Know. Well, and then the other thing that that always sort of bothered me about Jacobson is uh, Jacobson had no way of proving that he had natural immunity. I mean, he didn't want to get the vaccine uh, because he had had some problems with the vaccine in his childhood, if I remember uh, correctly. And he was an adult now, but he just didn't want to get it. 
he didn't have medical evidence. In fact, it wasn't until the 1970s, as I understand the science, that we really had the ability uh, to do blood tests and say, oh, look, you, you have natural immunity. You have the antibodies to this particular uh, virus in your system. Uh, our clients, they've had the tests. We know that they have the antibodies. So it's not, it's not conjecture. They have natural immunity. And so that's a difference between Jacobson and, and this case too, which I would have thought would have put our clients in a stronger position uh, than Jacobson. Right. I mean, it should. And I uh, hope that the Court of Appeals will see things that way. Um, and, and, you know, as you mentioned, the CDC guidance, which I think is another really big issue here. The uh, the CDC and other agencies keep falling back on the fact that this is guidance. It's, it's just a recommendation. Nobody has to do it. It's not a law. But then these institutions are implementing it as though it is the law and judges don't want to look at um, look behind it and they don't want to assess the actual data. So based on our assessment and our experts assessment, what keeps happening is the CDC runs these studies showing that actually natural immunity is much better. And if you have it, you really don't need the vaccine. But then the CDC just appends this uh, statement, but you should get the vaccine anyway. And if, you know, judges are treating it's they're putting us in a catch 22, basically, where they're saying, well, this isn't a law, so we're not really going to look at it. But at the same time, um, you know, it's uh, well, well, this isn't this isn't a law. It's just guidance at the federal level. So you can't sue the federal government because it's guidance. It's not final agency action. And so we're not going to look at the science. If you sue the federal right. government, we're just going to dismiss you and say you don't have standing. If you try to sue Michigan State University or somebody who's implementing the guidance, we're going to say, well, we're not going to look at the science because we're just going to look at whether or not it's reasonable for the university to rely on the federal science agencies. And of course, it's reasonable for them to rely on the federal science agencies. We don't need to look at the underlying science. I mean, so that's to me, that's the catch 22. And then on top of that, Jacobson was fined five dollars right. one time. Right. That was the penalty he paid when when he lost because Jacobson right. did lose at the Supreme Court. So he had to pay a five dollar fine. He didn't have to succumb to the smallpox vaccine. Right. Uh, that wasn't what happened to him. And yet here, uh, you know, you're talking about firing people from jobs. That's obviously much, much more severe uh, consequence than a five dollar fine. Right. Um, and it's, it's also worth noting that the court actually said at the end of the Jacobson decision, this is really based on the facts here. You know, they were making it clear that they were issuing a broader interpretation or you know, sort of they were saying all vaccine mandates were legal, which they're not. <laughs> they shouldn't be. And we're really hoping at this point that the court's appeals start to see that since the district courts haven't been uh, very good on the subject. Well, the other thing that's bothered me about this case, and I don't know if this is part of the appeal to the Sixth Circuit, maybe you can tell the audience, uh, but there's this emergency use authorization statute that these uh, that these vaccines were initially approved under. And the text of the statute says that essentially people can't be forced to take uh, the vaccine. And yet, in this case, Michigan State University is forcing uh, its employee to, to take the vaccine. Uh, is that is there going to be an opportunity for the Sixth Circuit to look at the EUA or excuse me, e, yeah, EUA yeah. statute? Yeah. So we raised that as uh, part of one part of the brief. Um, one of the as one of the issues we've been facing is that courts are saying, well, you're not being forced to take the vaccine. We're just predicating you know, your continued employment on it, which is ridiculous. That's not informed consent. Saying we're going to take away your livelihood unless you take this is not informed consent. People will recognize that in any other circumstance. So, very coercive. Yeah, very coercive. They're also the courts have also been saying that uh, there's no private right of action, which means individuals can't sue under this. It's supposed to be for the uh, Secretary of Health to sue. Um, 
and we're arguing. But the Secretary of Health's the one who's who's putting out the guidance. I mean, this is. Yeah, Um, but I think there's at least an argument that this uh, flies in the face of informed consent and so really shouldn't be considered rational. Uh, I see. So that's another way to attack it is is on this uh, is sort of on the rationality of the requirement. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Terrific. So Norris v. Stanley, uh, do, do you have an oral argument date yet in the Sixth Circuit? No, do you know when this is going to happen? Okay. No. Uh, so so your brief uh, is is going in July 5th, do yes, I understand correctly? July 5th. And then the government will uh, will file a response, and then you'll have a, a reply brief. Yeah. So, yeah right. Terrific. Well, good luck, uh, Janine. Good luck, uh, Gina Norris. Uh, we will keep the audience updated uh, on this case. Uh, go to our website, nclalegal.org, if you want to follow more on the Norris v. Stanley case. Thanks for being on Administrative Static Media.